Would you open God's precious holy word to Ephesians 1? And we've come now to verses 15 through 18. Paul's prayer for wisdom and for revelation regarding the church, for the church. The Holy Spirit speaks through the Apostle Paul. And in Ephesians, gives to the church, in my view, the deepest things of God relative to his intimate relationship to his people. We cannot understand the things that are the deep things of God unless the Holy Spirit helps us and teaches us. One way is for the Holy Spirit, of course, to inspire the apostle to give to us the very word of God. This deals with our salvation. Something that sadly is not completely appreciated by those of us who are in Christ. We have just studied what, as I understand it, is the longest sentence in the Greek text, verses 3 through 14. And I'm not going to check that out. I just believe that it's true if several people say it. But it has within that an unbroken blessing for the people of God regarding our salvation and brings into view this blessing, blessings that includes the Trinity, blessings from the Father, blessings from the Son, and blessings from the Holy Spirit. And we read deep things in that long sentence that comprise a truth of our position before God in Christ. In Christ, we are fixed positionally. There is a great need for us in order to, for us to understand who we are and how our experience should be, a great need for us to understand theology. That's not a bad word. Every time you read a passage of scripture, it's replete with some doctrinal truth, of course. So with that in mind, Paul has just, as a divinely inspired apostle, written what is the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. 
It encapsulates what the Father has done for us, what the Son has done for us, and what the Holy Spirit has done for us. Having described the blessings we have in our great God, Paul now prays for the church. So let's think about this as we, as we move on here. And we've come to verse 15. We'll take it from there. Because of this, because of what? Because of the Because of what I will call the positional reality that is ours. We We are forever positioned in Christ. That's what Paul just said. It begins with the Father. The Father chose us. The Father predestined us. The Father has adopted us. And has has provided for us an inheritance. The Son, moving on in in that long sentence, the Son has redeemed us. He's purchased us. He paid the price necessary for us through His blood. The Son has provided for us forgiveness of our trespasses. And when we studied that over a period of time in the last three or four weeks, I tried my best to reveal how in the Greek text those words were in such a tense that what is being taught belongs to eternity. It is, it is a thing, if it's in a, if for example, it's in a present active, it goes on and on and it, it never has a beginning, doesn't have an end. It's, this is, when, you, when you attach something to God, You're talking about eternal things. So my salvation is eternal. I don't have anything to do with it. God chose me in the beloved in that greater context of that sentence. So I have been accepted in the beloved, in the beloved one, who is, of course, his son. I am positioned forever. I have an eternal position before God that will never change. I see two realities here that that show themselves that, that we're taught in Ephesians. The first one is what I call positional reality. And then the next one is practical reality. What happens to me or to you, those of us who are in Christ, what happens to us in our practical reality has absolutely no bearing on our positional reality. We are forever positioned in Christ. You read up there, up there where it says all of this is done by the pleasure of the goodwill of the Father. He just decided to do it. This, I believe, is what we will study in the ages of ages. 
the eternal grace of God. I'm saved by grace, not by anything that I've done, but by the unmerited favor that God has given to me. By the very language that we've studied, I am forever, have always been forever positioned as a child of God. I can't do anything about that. Not today, regardless of what happens tomorrow, nothing yesterday. I cannot, it's, it's an eternal, I am eternally positioned. Now that's a deep thing. Because you and I, with our present unglorified state, wrestle with, wrestle with flesh and spirit as Christians. And the flesh says, oh, no, 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 no. I have to be responsible for things. It's the pride of the flesh, you see. I have to do something. I have to maintain something. I have to, listen. The practical reality of your experience in life in Christ has absolutely no bearing on your positional reality. Now, Paul has just established our positional reality. Longest sentence in the Greek text. We have been chosen by the Father and he has predestined us to be adopted. That, that gives to us privileges. And in the Roman mind, we bypass all of the hard stuff. Adoption in the Roman mind really was better than to be born into it. To be born into it mean that you had to be taken through a, a long and harsh series of discipline. But to be adopted means you just start right off the bat. So we're, we're, we're accepted in the beloved with full privileges. We don't have to take steps, a 12 step, whatever. We don't have to do anything. We're positioned by the pleasure of the will of the Father. That's what it says up there in first that verse, that, those long, that long sentence. So to take care of us continually, even after the fall of man, we have been as a gift to the Son, to the Beloved, accepted in the Beloved. He has paid the price with His blood to redeem us and we are forever forgiven in sin, uh, of our sins, in the Beloved, in Christ. Forever forgiven in Him. The practical reality of my life, some of which will be abysmal failure, does not affect my positional reality before God. Doesn't affect it at all. So he says, because of this, because of this great positional reality, and I am so sorry to say that so many Christians frantically beat themselves up and pursue silly things trying to never be dispossessed or unpositioned. It'll never happen. You didn't position yourself there. You can't keep yourself there. Salvation is all of God. That's why we worship Him. That's why we praise His holy name. Because of what He's done. 
So he says, because of this, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, Paul says, I do not cease giving thanks for you. I do not cease making mention in my prayers. And in the Greek text, it would be understood of you. I never stop mentioning you in my prayers. So here's what Paul says. He says, now he's in prison. You understand? Remember that? He's, Paul's in prison. But he says here, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love toward all the saints. Now let's go back to that first part of the letter. I told you that in the, in the oldest manuscripts, the little phrase in Ephesus is not there. It probably was written... But we'll see later on as we study this, this, this epistle that the epistle was apparently meant for all the churches in Asia Minor, all the churches. And later on, one of the later manuscripts has in Ephesus. So it was being passed around and probably what happened was the next church to get it would be the one in Ephesus and the one who would send it from that church to this church, the Ephesian church, had it included there. Here's my point. Paul is in prison, but in this imprisonment, he was allowed to have visitors. Ships, travelers were always coming and going. The Romans had a good network of roads and, and travel was not that restricted. And so it was, it's obvious that the saints of Asia Minor made it a point to visit the Apostle Paul in Rome. And to bring him news of what was happening. So Paul is saying this. People are coming and telling me of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of your love toward all the saints. Paul looks at that and he says, you know, I hear this report over and over and over. And I know that you are genuine Christians. Because you love, you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you love the brethren. And I, I and I never stop thanking God for you. And I'm always mentioning you in my prayers. So here is what Paul prays for. Praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And when he says the Father of glory, that means the Father has it all and he can dispense it and will dispense it. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay. Chosen by the Father. In the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies. Adopted as sons. Given an inheritance. It's ours. Redeemed by the Son. Forgiven of trespasses. And then the Spirit has sealed us. Has sealed us to the day of our redemption. And has been deposited into our lives as the earnest payment. Of what the Bible calls the acquired possession. That is we belong to God. God's not going to renege on the deal. And so to show everybody to show us he's not going to renege on the deal. 
He has given an earnest payment, namely his Holy Spirit in my life. Paul says, I'm going to pray because these are the deep things of God to the father of glory who can dispense it all to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Sometimes our Christian experience, the memories of our Christian experience sort of just begin with the altar call when we responded and for some it just may disappear along the way and then others we die and but we don't really think we don't really think or have a knowledge of who God is regarding our salvation we start out thinking and all of us do that we responded I heard it I struggled with it but I came under conviction and I was moved and I responded But if we mature as we ought to mature, we have increasingly the deep things of God revealed to us. You remember the story of how they came to stone the woman caught in sin. Jesus wrote something in the dirt. And Jesus said, whoever's here without sin, cast the first stone. And the Bible says, starting with the oldest guys, they just threw their stones down. The longer you live, and I can tell you this from experience, the longer one lives, the longer he realizes how disqualified he is from anything that God would do for us. We're just, we're just struggling in a not yet glorified state and Paul asks the question to the Romans, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because we carry it. You know, the sentence for murder, of a, the sentence of a Roman in Rome for murder was that the murderer had to have the carcass of the person whom he murdered Attached to his body, tied around. And he had to walk around for a while with that body of death on him. And then he would, he would be executed for the crime. But for a period of time before he was executed, he had to carry around the body of death. <laughs> Paul sees himself like that. I am so guilty of so many things. The only way I could ever be saved is by grace. There's no good thing in me. But God causes me to be born again. He wakens me. He brings me out of darkness and into the light. He exposes spiritual reality to me, which I could have never attained on my own, this knowledge of the light. And he calls me with a call that cannot be denied or resisted. And when I recognize what I really am, I come running to him. But here we are in practical reality. We have positional reality. That's ours. And this is where a lot of Christians struggle.
because they attach too much of salvation to their efforts, to their behavior. God works in a trillion ways to bring you to the point in time what he had determined for you in eternity. It's amazing how he does it. It's amazing. It has to be a thing of God. Not a thing of man, but a thing of God. These are the deep things of God. The deep things of God. How will we understand it? That we are positioned in Christ. I've come to Christ. He's my Savior. I've confessed that I'm a sinner. And I've asked to be forgiven. I have repented of my sin. But I struggle. Me, me, me. I, I, I. The deep, the deep things of God, among the deep things of God, are the truth that he has absolutely positioned us eternally in Christ. That's hard, that's hard to understand. I will spend eternity seeking an answer to that completely. Why me? I could point out a thousand other people who to me are better than I am and yet they're not saved because I don't have the mind of God. His ways are not my ways. They're above my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. They're above my thoughts. And so what does this do for me? I'm humbled. I'm broken. I want to walk humbly with my God. And now, as I, as I have revealed to me my, the reality of my position, I want the reality of my life's experience to reflect who I really am and what I really have in Christ. You can't live that life until you understand your positional reality. Then I can begin to understand and function Warren Wiersbe tells a story in his commentary on Ephesians of William Randolph Hearst. Decades and decades and decades ago, a newspaper magnate, one of the wealthiest men in the world. In the later years of his life, he decided that he wanted to own the greatest art treasures of the world. And so he hired an agent and Hearst would read the journals and the magazines of the great works of art. He would discover them in the history books and he would send this agent all over the world to find them and to buy them. And he kept these artworks in warehouses all around. This went on for years and years and years. The greatest works of art were owned by William Randolph Hearst and they were kept in warehouses. One day he read an article in a magazine about this great work of art. He called his agent into his office. Find this piece of art. Go all over the world, do whatever it has to do, you have to do, pay whatever they want. 
and bring this into my warehouse. Months and months and months passed and this agent went all over the world. His investigation brought him right back to Hearst and Hearst said to him when he came into his office, have you found it? Yes, sir. It's in one of your warehouses. You already have the thing. (laughs) That's like a Christian. Listen to me. People chase after peace and they chase after love and they chase after understanding. They chase after all this. Can you understand your position before God in Christ? You already have those things. They're yours forever. Now, walk in this experience and grow in Christ, in the knowledge of Christ and in his grace. This walk, I can tell you from personal experience, will make you think less and less of yourself and more and more of God. Until finally, you reach that place where you collapse into the presence of a sovereign God and say, oh God, it's all of you and none of me. Blessed be your name. The only thing left as you walk this walk of maturity is to praise him for who he is and what he's done. It's extraordinarily personal because it belongs to eternity. It's powerful. It's wonderful. It's real. This positional reality that Paul has described by the Holy Spirit's power in verses 3 through 14. And now he prays, give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they can see and understand this great thing of positional reality that belongs to eternity, a salvation that was worked out in time according to the eternal mind and will of God. This is what he says. Give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Let me tell you this. In Christ, and I only speak to those who are in Christ. Let's run through the gamut of 3 through 14 briefly, just to summarize. You will never ever be more or less elected than you are. You will never ever be more or less adopted into the family than you are. You will never ever more or less be redeemed. You will never be more redeemed than you are now. You will never be less redeemed than you are now. It will never happen because of the positional reality that is yours in Christ, according to the pleasure of the will of the Father. You will never ever be more forgiven or less forgiven than you are now in Christ because of your positional reality, positioned not by you or me. How could I ever climb that hill? I cannot. He had to come to me. And he did. 
that he might bring me to him. And that's why the, the thing starts out up there in verse three and four, that God is in the heavenlies. He's, he's seeing this in the heavenlies. He's seeing this against the backdrop of his eternity. And he's working out, not to my glory, but he's working out to his glory, to the praise of his glory. Father of glory, give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are and what you've done forever, what you have fixed forever for us in Christ. These are the deep things of God. Again, I say what we studied in verses 3 through 14, I would submit are the deepest things of God. I don't know that you'll find anything in the scriptures deeper than that. And they're so deep, the deepest things of God and the deepest reality and truth of his relationship to us and what he's done for us. It is so deep that we can never understand it without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul prays. Bear witness with their spirits. That they might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In the knowledge of who you are. You are almighty. You are eternal. We cannot, we cannot trifle with you. We cannot call into question what you have done. We cannot doubt you. We are yours forever. So that leads us. Now Paul, on at the end of Ephesians, tells us. He spends a couple of chapters telling us how to understand it. And then he ends Ephesians with telling us how to live in it. We're to the part now, though, where Paul prays. That we can just get a grip on our positional reality. We can't function properly unless we understand our position. You, you take a job. That job brings with it a position. You have a position. It has its realities. And if you don't understand, if you don't understand the position, you, you, you'll never get the job down right. So, this positional reality leads us in Christ into practical reality. And it starts... With God giving to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. I'm going to hazard a guess that some of us, I, I, let me tell you this, this has been my experience as a pastor. Christians actually fight the theological truth of positional reality. They fight it. They hate it. Because it's, it, 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 it flies in the face of pride. Because it makes me nothing. 
It makes me nothing. Which is really where I've been all along. They despise it, they hate it, they take, they avoid those words like, like election and predestination that we saw in the, man, they'll, they'll run from it like a plague. Because refusing the wisdom and the revelation and the understanding, the eyes of their hearts have not yet been enlightened. The eyes of your heart being enlightened in order for you to know what is the confidence of his calling. The confidence. I'm confident in Christ. I have absolutely no confidence in myself. None, none whatsoever. But if you put me in Christ, he called me to himself. I have utter and utmost confidence of his calling. So this gives me a humble sense of security and a growing desire to grow in the faith and to get to know him more and more and more. You don't start out knowing all there is to know about him. My daddy died when he was 86 years old. I grew up in the family at the house and then I worked in the family clothing business until I was 29 years old. I was around him all the time and yet the longer we lived together, the more I got to know about him. Things that I never knew before. The goal in life, the, the functional reality of a believing Christian, those of us who are in Christ, is to mature and grow in Christ by walking in practical reality because now we have a wisdom and a spirit of understanding regarding positional reality. I have to say this, I'm compelled to say it because I've seen it so many times in my ministry. I started in this thing in 1976. That's a long time. Every church I've ever been in, I try my best to preach these same realities that salvation is of the Lord, it's not of you. But people would somehow never exit the infancy stage. And to my chagrin and distress and disappointment, there were always those who, because of a failure in the practical reality of life, they thought they had to be saved all over again. And they never came for whatever reason. And I tell you, it's easy. 
It's easy to convince, but oh man, I can stomp and storm, tell you stories and pick out certain texts of scripture and probably, I don't know how many of us here today be saved all over again. I don't make fun of it. I distress over it. Because there's no understanding of who God, God is. The great almighty God who was tricked out of turning me loose somewhere along. How could you trick God? You see, I could do that. I could, I could exhort and admonish and, and do all that and, and just kick you around all the time. And all that would be produced is guilt. It's not my calling to produce guilt It's my calling to help you understand the greatness of God and his eternal salvation in Christ. So that in the place of guilt, there's a time for guilt, let me tell you. And God knows how to produce it in your life and in my life. But the greatest thing that we do is to do what we were created for as his people, namely to offer him praise and honor and glory. We can't understand that position unless and until the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to the confidence of his calling. Some wonderful day. With rapture and resurrection, the body of Christ at that moment in time will be caught up among the living and called out from among the dead. And may I say to you, there is no way that I'll be, I'm claustrophobic and I have to say the only thing about death that scares me is that somebody is going to put me in a coffin, close the lid and put me in the ground and cover it up. I'll get over it though. There is no way at the sound of the trumpet and the shout of the archangel that I could claw myself out of that box and fly up to where he is. I don't have that power. He has to make it so. He has to declare it to be so. And then he calls me up, come up here. Nothing in heaven and earth, nothing in the time space continuum, nothing in eternity, nothing ever will ever be able to hold me back when he calls me up. Nothing. Because I have confidence in his calling. I didn't save myself, I can't keep myself saved. I can't bring myself out of the grave and I can't carry myself into heaven. God does it all. And God didn't put the whole thing out to chance when he gave the gift of the elect to his son by the eternal covenant that we're taught in the Bible. God didn't put this thing out to chance. 
Son, I, I want you to have some people. I'll try my best for you to have some. Oops, lost two or three there. Ah, but look at that. that, that surprised me. See, God doesn't operate that way. The elect of God are God's eternally. They eternally belong to Him. Don't ask me to explain it because that's heaven's view of my salvation. My calling is to preach the gospel to everybody. I'm like the Apostle Paul. What I do, I do for the sake of the elect. And I don't know. Now, this is the gospel according to Charles. This is added to that. And I don't know who they are. I plead with all of them. But when we come to Christ, we should seek to grasp the great eternal truth of positional reality. Which helps me now to understand better the practical reality of my life. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? A home in heaven. My name from before the foundation of the world written in the Lamb's book of life. I will spend always and forever seeking to know more about that. No wonder the angels. It's almost like the angels are just, you know, like you know, they always shout over our redemption. They react. It's, it's like, oh, no. But it's always in the mind of God, the power of his grace and the eternity of his salvation. I want to tell you that we give our invitation differently now. We, we have uh, deacons and their wives ready for you when you leave in rooms right across the hall. If you would come to Christ today, you'll know it when God calls. They're there to help you. If you want to follow the Lord in baptism, having been saved, they're there to help you and work that out. If you want to come and be a part of Shiloh, they are there to help you. And we'll pray with you. But before the benediction, I want to recognize my good friend, Jesse.